morning, Pennington. It's a pleasure seeing everyone today. Uh, my name is Johnny Jaskula, and our scripture reading for today is from Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 6, reading from the NLT. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the, of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people, Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, John, for that uh, beautiful reading. I just discovered, I've known John for almost a decade and just discovered he prefers Johnny. So that's like a totally new thing for me. I'm going to have to wrap my head around. So if the first half of my sermon seems distracted, that's why. Uh, as we are in the Christmas season, I was reflecting back on Christmases over the last few years. And one of them I remember is that each year at the end of the year, we make a, a highlight video of what happened in that previous year at the church. And so different events and people and ministries that we were doing missions. And what we'll do is afterwards, we'll then take that video and we'll usually make a little Facebook ad and kind of share it in the community so people can see what's actually happening here. And one of my neighbors came up to me uh, around the new year and said, I saw the video your church made. And he said, first off, you have a really big building. I never knew what you guys did in there. It looks like you actually do things. That's great. And I was like, oh, thank you. We do do things. And I'm glad that the video reminded you of that very low bar, um, which then opened up a conversation talking about me and ministry and why I believe what I believe. And it was a beautiful conversation where I was able to share that like, I know myself and I know my own limitations, emotionally, spiritually, physically. And if I was all that there was, in the moral standards, the authority of this world, I feel like this world would be in a lot of danger. And he said, not me, brother. I said, okay, all right, great. You have it all together. Good for you. I've lived next to you for 10 years. I don't think that that is true. But that sort of confidence, this confidence that we have it all under control, that we got this, we can do this, we have it, is what we'll be talking about today. We'll be talking about the posture of coming to God from a position of above God, with our own authority, our own judgments, our own moral standards. For this Advent series, we're trying to do a few things, and I'm grateful for the positive feedback and interaction from a lot of the church members, a lot of you as you've listened. What we're trying to do is we're walking through four different postures of how we approach God, or four different ways that we approach God. Whether it's for God or from God, above God or under God, four ways that we come to God. Whether it's thinking of we have to work really hard for God in order to earn his approval, that's for God. Whether we believe that God is a cosmic vending machine, always blessing and giving all these resources into our lives, seeing God as a product from God. Today we'll talk about above God, coming in with our own moral standards. And then finally, next week in our family service, we'll talk about being under God and that constant fear of judgment or being squashed by a righteous, powerful, 
God. And we'll do that with our family Sunday. We'll have a lot of fun with that. And all the kids will make sure we have a bunch of fun illustrations and activities together. But today, as we talk about being above God, know that the goal of this series is to reimagine the way that we relate to God through His Son, the God who is with us. Rather than any of these approaches, what we're trying to do is know that our God wants to be known, wants to know us, and have a living, breathing relationship with each of us. He wants to be with us. And so each of these, I will give out one of the postures. We'll talk about that. We'll then share an Advent story from Scripture as an example of being with God. And then I'm going to walk you through a corporate prayer exercise that we've been encouraging throughout this Advent season of praying the Lord's Prayer in the morning, a missional prayer at midday, and a prayer of gratitude in the evening. Today, as we talk about working above God, we can understand it, and if we use some historical or theological terms, we're talking about the enlightenment from the 17th century, and we're talking about the parable of the watchmaker, a view of God as watchmaker. Many people in the modern age would like to believe that the problems of our world are due to radical ideologies, people who can't compromise, who have religious beliefs that disconnect them from the world and disconnect them from logic. And many people, even today, will point to, when you ask why the world suffers and struggles, they would point to religious extremism, examples of ISIS, or what we in the U.S. now call Christian nationalism, these viewpoints that are uncompromising, that find their value outside of logic and the world. Oftentimes it's said, if we just get rid of religion, all human beings can come together in rational peace. One of the most famous songs of all time, John Lennon, is about that song. Just imagine that we could get rid of any of these belief systems and all just be together as humans. The problem with that viewpoint is the 20th century itself, where we've seen more bloodshed, more death and loss from non-religious ideologies than anything ever. It's the Soviet Union in the beginning of the 20th century. It's Mao's communist revolution. It's the Khmer Rouge under Pol Pot in Cambodia. Three atheistic movements of destruction and death. And what in the 21st century most philosophers have come to understand is the Bible's theological viewpoint that human beings have a real capacity for terrible, horrible acts. We also have capacity for gracious, good, loving acts. And whether we're practicing religion or whether we're not, we are continually wrestling with the duality of who we are. People with great capacity to do evil and great capacity to do good and love. I want to address this morning... Not so much this extreme view of being above God, not needing him, seeing him as the problem, but more so for us in the church, the practical application of what it means when we believe God exists, but we don't live as if he has the authority to speak into every aspect of our lives. Or another way, we approach God from a posture of being above him. He is relegated then to an ideal to aspire to in Jesus, or a Hail Mary pass for any time we can't possibly rationally explain or work our way out of a situation. 
just Jesus and I kind of try to live like Jesus and then if everything is falling apart and all of my decisions aren't working, I'll last minute reach out to God to try and save it when it's not working. Prayer then becomes to us in some ways the same as any superstition. When I can't rational my way out of it, when I can't logic my way out of it, I reach to a mystical idea that might solve it. And for many of us, we even see prayer as akin to palm reading, astrology, or reading the tea leaves. At the last moment, I just reach outside of myself and maybe that will solve what I couldn't solve myself. I'll give you a bit of a history of how we got here and specifically the United States from the Enlightenment, what many people call uh, the long 18th century. Uh, Enlightenment spanned a bit before the 1700s and then a bit after the 1700s. If you are American and grew up here in this country, then much of our understanding of the world and how we interact with each other is influenced by Enlightenment thought. Many of our founding fathers held closely to Enlightenmentism, the, the idea of Enlightenment. Thomas Jefferson famously was a huge proponent of Enlightenment thought, the idea of reason, that we can reason our way into or out of anything. They call the Enlightenment the age of reason. And three contributing factors to the Enlightenment. First contributing factor, humanism during the Renaissance, a reimagining and a reprioritizing of being human, human beings, what our value is, who we are. Second is the Reformation bringing in individualism. And then the third, the scientific method bringing in rationalism. And if you combine the three, we are all human. Think about ourselves as fleshly people. Individuals, figure it out for yourself and what you see the world to be. And then a logical methodology. Me as a human, by myself, I can figure out anything. I can rationalize my way to it. I can logic my way to solve all of my problems. Much of the 21st century, with our computers, our technology, and our science, has been the wrestling with the idea that it didn't bring in the utopia we thought it would. That the internet has brought more separation and destruction and depression than the revolution we thought it would be. That oftentimes when we give a culture, a nation, democracy, they choose a thought a way, a direction we didn't think they should choose? Why are we all so different to spirit and have capacity to utilize each other for evil? So in the enlightenment, rather than a relationship with a deity, our job becomes figuring out how the world operates and then leveraging those pieces to control the world. I know how the world works. These are the pieces. I'm going to utilize them in order to control my environment. Working above God argues that our world and our existence works on principles and mechanics only, and that any of our fears are simply a lack of understanding, i.e. when I'm in bed and I see a shadowy figure in the corner of my bedroom and I wake up and I'm terrified and I turn the lights on, it's just my coat rack and my sweater hanging on it. That every fear that we live in is simply not understanding well enough. We just haven't turned the lights on yet to see that it's not really dangerous. The most common view of this is known as deism. Not Christianity, but deism. A belief that God exists, that he's good, that he created all of this, but he put it all in place, set it to go, 
and step back and let us do what we're going to do. Often known as the watchmaker analogy. That God is a divine watchmaker. He made a complex, beautiful watch known as the universe and human beings and interaction and culture. He wound it up and he let it go. And so we can see beauty and complexity and a divine thumbprint in everything. But in actuality, we think, well, that's what he did and he's not so interactive now. So we're left to our own devices now. We figure it out. We work it out. We do it on our own strength and power. Many of us come this way from philosophy given to us we didn't realize, and many of us get there from our own human experience, that sometimes it feels like the brokenness of the world, God's not intervening. It feels like the struggles and the loss and the doubts that I have, he's not speaking to. And so we say, well, then I guess I have to figure this out myself. I guess I have to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I have to figure it out. We, in this view, believe the world is divinely made, but not divinely sustained. He made it, but we have to sustain it. And in short, what we're kind of saying is, God exists, but he doesn't care. He exists, he made all this, but he doesn't really care that much to get involved, to interact, to be present. In a practical sense for Christians, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. I'm going to wait for one day your coming return. And in the meantime, we're just going to figure it out. The Bible then, rather than being an introduction to a relationship, becomes a guidebook for actions and activities. It's no longer a story of a God that is knowable, that calls us to sit under him and hear from him, and breathe him in and breathe him out. It becomes an instruction book for how to live our life. There's even an acronym for it. When we see Bible, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. We see the Bible as this. Many of us that grew up in the 90s know that because that nomenclature was very popular. The Bible is instructions for life. It guides us to a successful life. It guides our steps, our decisions, our families, our finances. It's a guidebook for how to live. In this, we reduce the Bible from God's revelation of himself to merely a revelation of divine principles of how to live. And then we hear sermon series like five biblical tips for a healthy marriage. Three, biblical principles for success in the office. How to manage your finances better. How to raise your children to be respectful, contributing members of society. All good ideas that the church should and can be involved in and bring God's guidance to. But all that begin from a loving relationship of knowing Jesus Christ and sitting under his loving presence. What happens is we start seeing Christian things without Jesus. And it becomes about Christianity and its thought process. Christianity and the culture it creates rather than Jesus and the relationship of knowing him. Jesus and spending time with him. Jesus and seeking his will and authority. We end up with things like Christian dating. Christian clothing. Christian music. Christian parenting, 
We put Christian in front of all these ideas rather than existing as an organization that guides people into relationship with Jesus and a community that encourages one another to how beautiful and life-changing Jesus is, to know that we are valued and loved and to feel that love and mercy from Jesus Christ in our bodies to fuel us to live our parenting, our families, our bodies, our finances out of a relationship rather than just merely principles. Now, principles aren't bad. They're really helpful, and they're what organize our brains. But when we begin to serve the principles rather than the one who breathed it all into life, we're out of step. Rather than give me principles to live a God-honoring life, give me Jesus, who I can sit under and be molded and transformed by. John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, Jesus challenged some of the Pharisees and the ones who knew Scripture most with this idea. He said, you search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the Scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. If the principles we're studying are not building in us a longing for the presence of Jesus, if reading the Old Testament and seeing people live and fail is not creating in us a longing for something better, for someone better, for a rescuer, a savior, a merciful God to come and fix it all and be with us, we are missing the true beauty of the scriptures we're reading. That it's not a story to organize our lives. It is a story about a person to live with and be known and to know. Now, this is the worst outcome of the life above God posture. It causes us to reduce our faith to principles, divine laws, applicable instructions. But discovering that these principles may not actually require a relationship with Jesus is the greatest disappointment of studying Scripture and not knowing Him. What it comes to is sometimes we may not say it, but we think that God exists, but I don't need Him. I like Him. He's given me instructions, but I got this. The life over God posture is particularly tempting when we are successful people, when we are competent people, When we have our lives organized and moving and working, I've sat under church planting meetings where they talk about strategies of helping those who are poor and helping those who are in need and running drug and alcohol rehab facilities and food banks and clothing drives and then talk about communities like ours and they say, how do we do church when people don't need anything? Well, they may not need those physical things, but all of us need to know our creator and need to know that there is love and mercy and grace that is not decided or dictated by our own life choices, but by the very grace of the creator of each of us that he gives to us, not because we're deserving, directly despite the fact that we don't deserve it, he has given us eternal life, freedom, and forgiveness. We all need that, and we all need that relationship. God relationships, whether human or divine, are often messy. And God invites us into a messy relationship of knowing him and being known by him. 
I will tell you, and for this series, we've been talking about daily prayer rhythms, praying in the morning, praying at midday, praying in the evening. And I'll tell you, as the one who is regularly trumpeting this, talking about it, encouraging it from the stage, I have not had a 100% success rate of praying in the morning, the midday, and the evening all throughout this Advent season. And full disclosure, my prayer life is the messiest, most erratic part of my spiritual life because it's a relationship and it's speaking and it's listening and it's knowing and being known and it doesn't move linear in the same fashion that reading through Romans does. Chapter, check, chapter, check. All 16, got it, book in place, moving on to the next. I don't know when prayer is done. Am I done? Is this enough? Have I heard from him? Has he heard me? It's a relationship. In the same way, it's hard to tell when it's time to go from your friend's house. Maybe when they've offered the third round of coffee or if they're literally vacuuming around your feet. Otherwise, it's hard to tell. Is it over? Is it not? Have we shared? Are we known? Being with God is about sitting in that tension of knowing a person. But honestly, if we miss it, and we live from a posture of above God, what it means is we're controlling, we are responsible, we hold the authority for all that is good and bad in this world. And that is crushing. If we hold to human beings or the ultimate authority of goodness and evil in this world, it can A, create incredible bitterness. You've probably felt it at your fingertips when you're on social media. It's just so angering. They are so clearly wrong. If they were gone, all of this would be fixed. If my ideas and my group were running all of it, everything would be solved. You're furious that no one can seem to get it right and people continue to suffer. Or it creates incredible apathy as we see a ginormous problem that each of us, one out of eight billion people, can't possibly solve. And we feel the weight and it's crushing and debilitating. This is the great failure of life above God. The movement of the Enlightenment, which then birthed into modernism, which is that everything new is better and eventually we're going to solve it, was crushed and derailed by two global wars born right out of the hotbed of this philosophical place into World War I and World War II to say, oh, Maybe we didn't have this as figured out as we thought we did. All right, let's look at a biblical example of how to wrestle with this and how to live this out. What's the solution? The solution of gratitude and giving. How do we live a life full of gratitude and generous giving? How do we hold with a loose grip and release this world to the authority and control of Jesus? We'll see one example in Matthew chapter 2. As John read in verses 3 and 4, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard that King Jesus was coming. And everyone in Jerusalem was disturbed as well. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? He saw the coming king as a threat. Now let's jump down to verses we haven't read. Verses 10 and 11. This is the Magi. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. 
They then opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Wise men. A little bit of history really quick before we look in the principles. Wise men came from the east. Most likely they came from sort of a region of Iran um, or Iraq, but certainly to the east of Israel. Most likely they traveled about a thousand miles by foot or with just, you know, a bovine animal across a desert in order to be there. Many think they come from maybe the region where Abraham was, or they come from the region where Daniel was kept in captivity. Large scholars think they practiced an ancient religion of Zoroastrianism, an old form of monasticism, of one God, and traveled to this region. What we do know is magi means they were some sort of wise astrologers in their community. They were respected, wise, intellectual people that others looked to for advice, for their religious direction, for what's happening in the world. Can you look to the stars for us and tell us where our culture is going, where my life is going? That was their job. And in looking at the stars and listening, God was able to speak into their hearts and into their lives and guide them into a new direction. And we see an interaction in this passage. Is the authority of Jesus a threat or a blessing? It's the two different takes here. Herod hears about baby Jesus coming. There's a king coming. Immediately he sees the authority of someone else as a threat to his power and his control. Someone else is coming. I'm going to lose my my control over this. I'm going to lose power over this. I cannot... I cannot bear this, so I'm going to lie, cheat, and kill in order to maintain my control. The Magi see their loss of authority, a king to come, as a blessing. Do we see God taking our authority as a threat of control or as the freedom that comes from letting go to his capable hands? So we see the wise men do three things in this passage in verses 10 and 11. The first thing they do, we can learn from, celebrate that it's not on us. Celebrate, it's not on your shoulders. It's not on you. It's not on me. We are not saving this world. We are not the ones deciding the moral goods and evils of this world. We are not the ones saving it from destruction. Our examples of humans being able to do that are pretty poor. We are not very good at it. But celebrate that it's not on us. It is on the creator of the universe who through Jesus Christ made all that is and anything he didn't make doesn't exist. He breathed it all into life and he is in control and authority over it all. He will ultimately bring justice for all injustice that has taken place. He will ultimately heal everything that is broken. He will save everything that is lost. It is not on you. You may be walking in this season a lot of weight, of your family, of children who aren't walking the way you would like them to, who are making poor decisions, your own family, loss of people who have died in this season and trying to hold that all together and wear that weight on your shoulders. What the Magi show us is when other authority is seen, we can gladly hand it over and know that it is in his capable hands. And they handed it over when he was a toddler. And they were like, his shoulders, he's got it. This toddler, he's got it under control. We have an adult resurrected Jesus that we can hand all of our authority, all of our control, all of our stresses over to. 
and to celebrate that the world is not decided by me, but by Jesus Christ, whose example we can read about in four individual biographies and whose implications we can read about in all of the New Testament of how good and capable he is to bear what we cannot. The second thing they do is they lay down control. They lay it down. It literally says in the passage, that form of worship is translated as to lay prostrate. They literally got on the dirt of the home of Mary and Joseph in front of a little toddler who may have just been running around in front of them. These wise, respected men put their faces into the dirt and said, you have control. We worship you. You have authority. Many have seen even this passage as three men from a different religion, a different culture altogether, who have traveled a thousand miles to lay it down and say, my viewpoint, my religion, my belief, all wrong, I give it up. I give it over to the control of this man who is God, that the stars have revealed to us is here and present and with us. And if we could just be with him, I would release my controls, my assumptions, my culture, all of it into his loving hands. Many of us come into church, we come into this idea, this philosophy, this religion of following Jesus, and there are so many things we're willing to do, but often even more that are off limits. You can affect this aspect of my life, but not here. You can speak into my finances, but not my sexuality. You can speak into my sexuality, but not justice. You can speak into my individual life and freedom, but not bringing into community and vulnerability. To ask ourselves the question, what are we unwilling to lay down in the dirt before Jesus? What have we still held on to that control over? And I can tell you a little trick of knowing. What stresses you out the most about your life currently? That's an area you're controlling and holding to be able to let that go to Jesus. And I'll tell you, it doesn't just happen one time at an altar space. You gotta do it dozens and dozens of times. I put it down, I pick it back up. I put it down, I pick it back up. But eventually to learn the pattern of releasing it into the control of Jesus. And third and final, offering up our gifts and talents. Um, this is actually, I don't like the New Living's translation here because I don't like treasure chests. I don't know, it just sounds like a cartoon pirate, right, opening it up. But to open up these precious gifts that they brought before Jesus, that they protected, that they took from their homeland a thousand miles away, protected over a dangerous journey, over months or years traveling to get there, protecting it, hiding it from bandits that would take it from them, threaten their lives, bringing it all the way here, treasuring it, taking care of it in order to then hand it over to Jesus and say, this is better in your hands than in mine. And asking the question of our lives, what has God blessed us with that he's calling us to hand over for him to make better, for him to use, for him to bless others through? What are the gifts each of us has brought into this relationship with Jesus? What are the gifts we have in the room? not just our resources financially, although he has something to say about them and he can use them to bless others. Absolutely, that's what Kingdom Builders is about. But what about our time? What about the talent of who we are? 
What about the insights, the brain, the heart that God has given to each of us that he says you can use that in the church? You can use that in your community. Lay that down and I will show you the true blessing of what it is in you and through you. To see the authority of Jesus as a blessing rather than a threat. To see our posture rather than being above God, trying to control our world, but to see it as with him. And I am certainly not saying that rationalism, an individual relationship with Jesus, that the scientific method are bad things. They are gifts from God. But they are not our salvation. They are not what gives me hope. What gives me hope is the person and presence of Jesus incarnate stepping into this world so that he could have a relationship with each of us and be known and know. What we'll do today is practice a daily prayer habit together communally. This is a day of two communal prayer practices. We are going to practice our midday prayer of a missional prayer. I thought nothing better to teach us about submission than praying God's mission into our lives. That it's not my mission for my life, it's seeing myself through the mission of Jesus Christ, healing, redeeming, loving this chaotic world. So in our daily prayer rhythm, we begin with the Lord's Prayer. We finish with gratitude in midday, wherever that is for you. It could be 11. If you're in high school, it's like 10 a.m. And then it could be at 2 o'clock when you're taking a break at work. Praying a missional prayer. Jesus speaks to us in Luke 15. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. So let's practice this prayer together. Get yourself back into a posture of prayer. We're going to be praying communally and inviting God to speak. This prayer exercise will also be helpful if you have something you write with. There are note cards on the seats in front of you. You can grab some of that and write down. You can open a note or a new Google Doc in your phone. That's what I usually do. You can write it down. Because our first part is praying for people by name. Take a moment and invite the presence of God to reveal to you somebody in your life that God has placed there that he wants you to share love and grace with. That he wants you to share your faith or share love or be an agent of healing for them. Who is that name that God's placing on your heart? Take a moment, ask him to reveal it.
in this moment, begin to intercede for that person or those persons. Ask God to love them. Ask God to bless them. Ask God to draw them into his loving presence. Begin to pray for that person right now. God, may you be their good shepherd. Lord, may you find those who are lost. May you restore those who are broken. May you lead them into your loving presence. May you share your salvation with them. Second, we're going to pray a prayer of compassion. I will take the guilt off for a second and say, sometimes when it comes to praying for the lost, there may be a moment where you're saying, well, it just hasn't been that important to me. And I don't want you to feel too much guilt over that. We can invite the Holy Spirit to give us the same heart that Jesus had for the lost. May he increase our compassion. May he make us more sensitive to the brokenness and the hurting around us. So take a moment and pray a prayer inviting compassion into your life. Ask God to give you his good shepherd's heart, seeing those and loving those as he sees and loves them. And confess anything that's been getting in the way of your compassion for the lost. Spirit of God in this room, may you be softening our hearts. May we not be hard to the suffering of those around us, but may we be sensitive, soft, and to feel the longing and hurt of your children around us. Finally, we pray a prayer asking to be sent. Asking the Lord, to use us, to send us, that we may be his agents of love and care. Ask that he would send us. Ask that he would give us opportunities to share his love, to be his hands and feet. As we pray this prayer today, as we are practicing it each and every day of this season of Advent, I want to also encourage you that Christmas Eve is coming up. It will be December 24th this year. Uh, It will be 5 p.m. here. Took some of you a second. And this is one of the two or three times each year 
when the people around you in your life are most open to be a part of a faith experience, that they're longing for something more and something significant. In our lobby, our Christmas Eve invites, they're beautiful, they're soft to the touch. And you can take those, take as many as you want and invite someone, maybe that person who the Holy Spirit put on your heart this morning, invite them out to Christmas Eve. If you're cool and you're a digital native, we also have our reels on Instagram, our photos and videos up on social media. You can share those on your stories, share them on your own page, even send them or DM them to somebody, invite them to Christmas Eve this year, five o'clock here, as we will be, and I promise you, I will to the best of my ability, be sharing about the faith, hope, and love of knowing that our God is with us and for us and is knowable in Christ Jesus. Amen? If you'll stand with me this morning. I want to give you just a chance Really quickly, if you are in the room and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, you can't confidently say that you know him, I want to give you a chance just to pray that prayer of inviting him into your life. For all of us who are followers of Jesus, use this as a moment of declaring your faith, of committing in. God, I want to know you better. I want to know you and be known by you. Jesus, I want to see your authority your role as king, as God, as a blessing and not a threat. I want to know you. Jesus, I believe that you came to this world. You lived a perfect life. You taught love and grace and healed. And then you went to the cross and died for my sin, for my shame. On the third day, you rose from the grave resurrected, full of glory, so that we could follow you into eternity and that this world may be healed through you. Jesus, you gave your life for mine. Today I commit my life to follow you and to know you all the days of my life. As we close out this morning, I'll have the worship team lead us in one final song and I'll just invite you as we look at the authority of Jesus, as we submit into his mission, what is he placing on your heart? Where is he leading you to a place of celebration and to lay down for his kingdom and his cause?